0: Well, welcome everybody, and uh, it's a pleasure to have Kim and Ed Roberts with us. We've known Kim and Ed for many, many years from being members of Johnson Ferry. And many years ago, Kim and Ed were in the Bible study group. 2008, you think it was? Something like that? At least something. So, let me tell you a little bit about Kim, and uh, she's going to tell you more about herself. She is going to be. She's a licensed professional counselor with Fresh Air Consulting, and her topic is going to be How do you go through the chaos with your prodigal and still love them at the same time? She might even tell you a little bit about her story, about how she got to where she is. I think it's a God story, but we've known Kim and Ed for a long time. And Kim, we are really glad you're here and look forward to hearing what you're going to have to say tonight. So I'm going to pray for you and then welcome you to the podium. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Kim and Ed Rogers, Lord, and their family and for how you moved in Kim's heart many years ago to bring her to where she is today, Father, to to help other people, other families, other children. And Lord, we just pray that tonight you'll speak through her in a mighty way and that everything she says will bring you glory and honor, Lord. We just are all ears to hear how we can manage the chaos that we're dealing with in our lives with our children, Father. We trust them to you. We just pray that you'll speak through Kim in a mighty way and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Welcome, Kim.
1: We do go way back with Don and Fair, and they probably don't even remember this, but once upon a time, we tried to breed our dogs. I remember that. Okay. <laughs> that was a, and it was an epic fail, because we thought they would just, the do, we just put the dogs together, and they would just figure it out, but a, a, we could have learned a thing or two about breeding, but, um, so we didn't get any puppies, but. We had a fun time, and we've known John and Fair. I don't even remember how we met, but at least we go back as far as 2000. And um, they've been a big support to us, and with Parents of Prodigals, which I know just from their backstory, that that was formed because of their son. And I believe that had my son not gone through all the... um, the chaos and the grief and just the going to a distant country that he did, I wouldn't be where I am as a counselor. But I was just, as you probably are today, looking under every stone to try to help your child. And that's what I was doing. And as I, as I started into that, and I started really talking to other kids. Jackie is one of my friends from way back when, and she had a son. Our sons were friends, and they also shared a problem. So, <laughs> so and I adore her son, and, and hers is such a, um, such a success story. But anyway, so Drew became an engineer and has a family, and went to Georgia Tech, and it's, it's just lovely. Um, our son is now 32, and he has uh, a good story as well. But at that time, we really didn't know what to do, and we didn't have that much support. And so Ed and I, um, I love, Ed's here by the way, and he said, because there was a, we have three children, a daughter who's now 36, our prodigal's 32, and then we have another son, 27. And you do feel very judged, you know, and like there's something wrong with your parenting. Like, oh, my gosh, what did we do wrong? Where did we, you know? And you go back with a fine-tooth comb thinking, what could we have done differently? And I remember Ed at that time said, well, if people are going to judge us by our children, I get to choose the child. <laughs> so anyway, fast forward to we did end up um, sending our son to treatment center in Montana and he did learn a lot although he relapsed I guess about three months later and then um decided that and this is a smart kid which by the way that aligns with addiction you probably I could tell you the profile of your child and I don't even know them (laughs) but um He was a really smart kid and he said, and we were really kind of in favor of this because he was so behind in school. He said, I just want to get my GED. So he went and took the GED and he got hope. I didn't even know you could do that, but if you score high enough on the GED, you can get hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was like a pleasant surprise, but nothing changed with, he he entered college here at Georgia Highlands, nothing changed really um, with his habits there. And so we thought, oh, well, he likes snowboarding. We'll send him out to Colorado. So we sent him to college in Colorado, and he just bombed out there. But he did learn keyboards, and (laughs) he already knew guitar. And he had taught himself um, three different uh, audio engineering programs. And so from there, he, he just sort of bounced around to different places but all the time learning more and more about audio engineering wound up at a studio and from there he kind of got his footing and started making better choices and I really do I was telling John I said part of it I, I truly believe is just maturity because you know your prefrontal cortex which is your executive function of your brain which is making your they all your decisions it it analyzes pros and cons just like that. That really doesn't finish maturing until you're 25 or 26. And you can see it. If you've got older children, you're like, oh yeah, if we can just get them there. (laughs) So I think that had a lot to do with our sons making better decisions. But anyway, I decided at that time. That I wanted to go back to school, I had my degree in journalism, but I had stopped and I had wound up in marketing, which is where Ed and I met. He was actually my boss, and he was a regional marketing manager, I was a field marketing manager and then um, and then I stopped working to raise children, so I said, I want to be in a helping profession, and I think I want to do counseling so I, I didn't really, in my mind I wanted it, but it was kind of one of those real vague things that I didn't think would happen. Like, you know, the goals that we have, they're out there, but we're, we're, we don't see them playing out. So I said, I'm just gonna go take the GRE. And I did well enough. And I said, and this was, I always tell people, this is just God opening doors. Because the, I did really well in the GRE, even though I didn't study. I said, this was me not studying. I'm gonna do a baseline. And then I'm just going to see how I do, and then I'm going to see what parts I need to focus on. But I did, I did well enough and got in, Georgia State, into, and it's actually a special program that they had. But I said, even then I told Ed, I'm like, I'm not really going to go, but I'll go to the orientation and just see what's, see what's going on down there and what the program's about. And I'll never forget signing up for two classes while I was down there and coming back and showing Ed the student ID. I go, I guess I'm a student now. So fast forward to I got my uh, my master's in rehab counseling, and then I did my doctoral coursework, which is your EDS, in professional counseling. And from there I worked for the state for a little while with schizophrenics, and I said, I didn't study for this, and I won't last two weeks. But you know what? I have a real heart for schizophrenics to this day. I lasted a couple of years and wound up at Cobb County and um, then switched over to a private practice and then four years later started my own private practice. So I've been in private practice since 2019 and I have an office in Cartersville and an office in East Cobb. My office in Cartersville I do a domestic violence program where I they're court mandated but the people that see me are I do a group of men and a group of women, and they have, it's a 16-week program, and once they go through it, they have, if they have a domestic violence charge, which is what lands them there, it'll be expunged. But again, it was a God thing because I love them. I'll never forget when they asked me to do it, they go, we want you to work for us and do this domestic violence program. And I thought they meant the victims. And I'm like, oh yeah, I've I've worked with some victims before they go, no, the perpetrators. (laughs) And I'm like, ooh. But you know what, As, as you might guess, there are people, executives, I've had nurses, I've had firefighters, I've had police, I've had teachers, I've had everything in there. And I think that what that tells us is that everybody struggles. You know, this may be what our struggle is. We were dealt the prodigal card. Right? But you can look under any family's dirty laundry and they are struggling with something. So, you know, I would encourage you never to ever feel shame about your prodigal. It was just God saw you fit to parent a prodigal. And that's the way I kind of look at that. So, um, and y'all can interrupt me during this. I just want to talk a little bit about boundaries and how boundaries can help us with our prodigals but um, if you have any questions, I just, I'm good with this being a conversation. So we can get started. Um, What are boundaries? I know I love the kitty, so I have to start off with him. Boundaries are the limits of appropriate behavior between people. So the reason that we even want to show boundaries is that they protect us, it's like a fence. It's like knowing where we can go and where we can't go. And that's, and there's no doubt in my mind that you have taught your kids boundaries. Even if you don't realize you've taught your kids boundaries, we have boundaries. If I were to come up and I'm starting to talk to you and I'm starting to, everybody's antenna goes up. Why? Because we have a physical boundary. There's like, why is she walking over there? Why is she going to touch him? That's our boundaries. So you you have taught your kids those boundaries. Those kids have boundaries. Um, it's just that we need to establish the ones that are going to protect us as well as protect your children, you know, almost from themselves sometimes. So types of boundaries are, okay, material boundaries, money, car, clothes. We have, um, we knew some people when we were going through our stuff. They had a child, and it was kind of, it's a very sad ending but um, she would borrow their car and she wouldn't even make it out of the neighborhood and she would wreck it in the neighborhood and um, it's kind of one of those things is if I'm going to give my money away if I'm going to give my car away clothes I want to make sure that I'm doing it to a trustworthy person right if you don't think you have material boundaries have a person come and stay at your house and then they walk downstairs and they go I use your toothbrush that's okay isn't it you're just like you can keep it (laughs) you know so we do have material boundaries and we just want to be sure that we're we're wise with our material boundaries because if you've got a prodigal that's an addict and I know that not everybody's prodigal that's their struggle substance abuse it could be I know that there's other struggles because Ed and I led the parents prodigals group about five years and we got everything it wasn't just substance abuse but generally speaking they are in a distant land they're doing something that is contrary to what we want for them and generally speaking it's because it's what's best for them you know so they're in some way shape or form harming themselves so um like, for example, money. We, we want to make sure we don't give them money because they can use that for drugs. And I even had a person once tell me, uh, an addict, she, we were, I was trying to help her get a job when I was working for the state. and she, I said, look, here's this job, you know, it's with Burger King. And she goes, oh, I can't go near the cash register. Because she knew that that, that was going to be a trigger for her. So, I mean, and that was a wise person. Um, physical boundaries—we've already examined those. But um, room, giving personal space—I believe in that. Even with our kids, especially if we've—if we're at odds, I do want to engage. I do want to communicate. I do want to talk to them, but not when they're so emotional or so angry that it's going to feel disrespectful to me. So leaving and and um, going to a giving them space, taking space for myself. Sometimes it's not them, it's you. You need to take the space like, hey, I'm giving myself a time out right now because I need to be alone and I don't need to be around the chaos or a toxic environment. And that's that's good self-care on your part. Um, Mental boundaries would just be thoughts, beliefs and values. And sometimes this is the part that we get attacked by, especially if we have teenagers because what is going on is they're trying to establish independence, and and because they know what's coming, they know I'm going to be an adult soon. I'm going to be out into the world, and I'm I want to establish. I'm different from you. That starts at age two, by the way, when they say no, and that's that's just the process of individuation, where a kid decides at some point, oh, I'm not you, and you're not me, and you say don't don't you can't have a cookie and they want a cookie all of a sudden, well you're not my friend. We're on different pages here. And it ever since that moment they started this individuation, I'm an individual, I'm different, I'm different. And when they're when they're seeking independence, a lot of times it's like, whatever you are, I'm gonna be the opposite. Have you ever felt that way? It's kinda like, oh you I you're Republican Democrat, you know. So um, and I wouldn't take that too much to heart. That's just, I think them, and you're on the same page. I used to, that's my favorite thing to do is to give them a vision, like in two years, you're going to be out and making your own decisions. And so it's kind of like, I'm, I'm loving that idea. You know, you're going to be, I'll never forget, I got to college and I didn't know how to fold sheets. And I thought to myself, where? how come I don't know how to fold, fold sheets? But it's kind of like, when you get to college or when you get out on your own, you're gonna be doing this, you're gonna to need to do this. So, um, giving them those visions, is it lets them know, I'm not here to try to suppress you or your independence or your maturity or your growth. I'm, I'm, I'm like beating the drum boy. So make sure they know, I love the fact that you're gonna be out and when you go out, and this is really important, Give them a good vision. You know what? You're going to be a great musician. You're going to be a great engineer. You're going to be a great dad. I saw you. And and try to catch them doing good things. But if they're kind to their brother or sister, you know what? You're going to make a great dad. Or you're going to make a great mom. Um, Emotional boundaries. This is where... Because we called it the GB. This was my sister's. <laughs> she pointed. She goes, N- "Our our prodigal's name was Niles, so Niles knows where your guilt buttons are." And and my and Niles and I actually, I came up with a word that every time I noticed that he was trying to push my guilt button, I would say the GB. You got the GB, so that I would know that he was either victimizing or just trying to guilt me into doing something that he wanted me to do. So emotional boundaries are respecting others emotions but also respecting ourselves and being able to feel safe to express our emotions but also making it safe to express theirs and if if they're like obviously angry and yelling look I see that you're angry and I want you to tell me why but you're gonna have to do it in a more respectful manner and that's just boundaries the umbrella boundary is respect I'm going to respect you And in return I expect you to respect me And that's, that's a violation of a respect boundary If you're going to yell um, Sexual boundaries No means no Safe words Safe words is just saying something When you don't feel comfortable And coming up with a word in, in advance Spiritual boundaries Are just respect for others' beliefs How boundaries help us They protect us um, they make us feel free to do things because if we weren't safe, we couldn't sit here. Like if the boundary was, um, this is one of those churches where people just come in and, and with guns or they start questioning what we're up to. Or For example, if we were in China, you know, the boundaries would be different, wouldn't they? We wouldn't feel as free to just sit here and, and pray. Um, makes people accountable for their actions. Boundaries keep people accountable. We don't take accountability when our when our children choose to um, choose to take drugs, and that's what's the weird thing is about the shame is that we're getting shame even though we're not making that decision. You know, so it's easier to when you think about it in terms of boundaries. This person's doing this, I disagree with it, and I'm doing what I can to maintain the boundaries of my house, which would be, we'll get to this, but not allowing drugs in your house. Um, Boundaries allow individuals to feel safe, valued, respected, and worthy. Um, They did this thing one time where these kids were in a a playground, and they would kind of congregate in this one area, and then one day they came in and they put a fence and all of a sudden the kids were able to use the whole playground because they felt safer. You know, well, there's a fence now, now we know where the boundary is. And I think sometimes it's with your kids, even though they may really know, you can say, hey, I'm noticing that you don't really know where the boundary is here. It's not you take my credit card and buy anything you want, but it's I'll give you my credit card, and you're allowed to spend $100 on groceries or something like that. And if they, if they violate the boundary, then you can say, well, we had a boundary in place, but you violated it. Um, helping versus enabling, now, I, I really, this is one of my biggest struggles, was doing things for my kids that they could do for themselves, which is the definition of enabling. Helping is when you're assisting a person that needs help. Sometimes you have to wait for them to ask. Like if you've got adult children and you see that they're struggling, um, you may be able to say, okay, I'm gonna go and help this way. But sometimes it's better to just let them ask, you know, make them ask, see if they recognize, I need the help and I don't. You know, it's funny because when the place that our son went to um, in Montana, um, they do they go on a wilderness trip for a couple of weeks, and one of the things that they do is they overload one of the kids and they're carrying all this stuff and they see how long they can the kid will go before they'll ask for help and that's the whole purpose of it is you need to ask for us for help and he, We did a little thing with a different group at our house where we put a little maze up and we blindfolded the kids. And I, we said, you can, um, you can get out of this maze, or you, if you are having trouble, just raise your hand. So, and we did this little maze with yarn, and they're all going around the maze, blindfolded with the yarn, and they're like, and just keep. It doesn't. There was no opening. We just wanted them to just see how long it it took them and understand. You do need to ask for help, and it's okay to ask for help. So it was funny because we got one by one they'd raise their hand and we would go take the blindfold off and, and lead them out. And there was a couple of people that I thought they were gonna be in there all night. I'm not kidding, they were not giving up. So it's, it's one of those things where our kids need to know we're, we, we will help you and we have good ways of helping you. We just need you to ask. And sometimes they're so lost they're not going to ask, obviously. Um, why it's hard to maintain boundaries. And this really gets into if you are an uh, empath, I know we don't have to go too deep into this, but um, I think it's kind of interesting, so I'll, I'll write it out. Um, when we're talking about empathy, can everybody see this? When we're talking about empathy, um, what happens is. Some of us are really high empathy. This is the empathy s- spectrum. And we'll say this is zero. And over here, you've got your um, psychopaths, and they are kind of the predators of society. We've got... Um, they don't have much empathy, so it's they're more on, really, on the fringe of society, um, preying on people. And then you've got... Your sociopaths, and sometimes these are, you, these show up in narcissists. So, they're very um, me-oriented. It's all about me, and what's over. And that's about mid. And this be, this would be about your healthy place. Over here, though, I always say it's a curse and a gift. If you're high empathy, it's really hard to, to watch your kids struggle. I mean, you see them struggle and you feel it. It's just, it's, I see some of y'all nodding. It's, it's the, that's us. I mean, it's like, oh, I can't even look. You know, because we are, we are high empathy, which makes us pleasers. We're very other, it's a, it's a curse and a gift because we're very others oriented. But, um, but we tend to struggle with conflict. And the reason why is because we want to please, we don't want the conflict, we want others to be happy, and it, and the codependence motto is, um, if you're okay, I'm okay, but you have to be okay for me to be okay. And it's sitting in that conflict with your prodigal that's so hard. And sometimes what, what makes it so difficult is just feeling that tension, you know, so, what, what I do is I say just be aware that you, you're experiencing that tension and it's kind of like, okay, good, I'm, I'm flexing those tension muscles and see if you can just sit with it long enough to, to put the boundary down there or to um, say no because that's, mm-hmm. this, that's what's so hard for high-empathy people to say no is because it feels like conflict and conflict feels like work. So a lot of times what I would do is, this is me kicking the can down the road, my kids will say, hey, can we do this? And I'm like, um, we'll see, because I did not want the conflict. I didn't want to feel that tension, because I didn't want, I didn't want to say no. I didn't want, and that was, that was really an issue. Ed didn't have any trouble at all, <laughs> but I did. And then it, the, the day would come when, they had, when whatever it was that they wanted to do would be there, and they'd go, well, take us to so-and-so. And I'd say, no, I said, we'll see. they go, that's the same as yes. Yeah. And so it's kind of like all I did was postpone the work, postpone the conflict. And it really is work. And I think if you recognize that, it helps to go, man, this feels tense, but that doesn't mean there's something wrong with me. That means that I'm a high empath, and I'm sensitive to what they want, and I want, I want them to be happy because what parent doesn't? And so it, it's hard for me to say no. And, um, and I know Jackie knows exactly what I'm talking about. So um, the empaths put others' needs and feelings first. Um, sometimes it's, we don't value ourselves. Especially if you're, not, if you're not using that, two things. If you're not um, recognizing and, and establishing those boundaries and sticking to them. And the other thing is getting self-care. You've got to get self-care. I know people used to tell me that, and I was like, oh, sure, sure, I'll do that. You know, there, there's no time. But you've got to make the time and see that you aren't your prodigal. You're not your prodigal's problems you're yes you love them and yes you care and you're going to do the the best that you can for them but they they cannot control your life like that you've got to go and get time for yourselves and just go out and you know try to do something that will help you relax and just not think about that for a while um they don't feel like they have rights or divert, deserve respect. And the worst, worst things I see with kids, the way that they treat their parents, you're just like, oh, you know, because they don't feel like they deserve the respect. Or this is the biggest one. They believe setting boundaries jeopardizes a relationship. I can't say no because he'll hate me, you know. And so they bring him into my office, so I'll say no. You know, you need to tell them this, and did you tell them that? like, <laughs> well, have you told them that? So they never learn to have healthy boundaries, and that's, that's so true. And, and we've known people where they come from families that didn't have healthy boundaries. And so all of a sudden, um, they're doing things that you don't approve of, and it's because of where they came from or who they're hanging around. Okay, so you have a right to privacy, you have a right, and that's, and that's big, you need, you need your privacy. And I, I always make sure, you, the kids, you can get your privacy too, that's important. Um, to say no, to be addressed with courtesy and respect, to change your mind, or to cancel commitments. Sometimes we feel like, oh, well, we told the coach we'd be there, we can't go, we can't tell them that they can't play, because we've already made the commitment to the coach. No, you just say you need to call the coach and you're not going to be there. So, and I've told I mean honestly, I've had parents have said we've had to just not be at the house because they they are become the Tasmanian devil when they can't go to practice. Um, to ask people to hire to work the way you want. You wouldn't think that, but sometimes that is the hardest thing for people to say. I need you to do it this way. Um, to ask for help, to be left alone, to conserve your energy, or to com- choose when to communicate. How many people have their kids? Their their kids just want to decide when they communicate, right? Yeah, they they come in and it's. I know it's eleven thirty, but we're going to talk about it right now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you're like, please no. Okay, boundaries in communication. This is just, you know, eighty percent of communication is nonverbal. Be direct. Um, sometimes that's difficult because you already know you're going to get such pushback, and and it takes a lot of energy. They drain you. Prodigals will drain you like nothing other, no other. Um, use your child's communication style or love language. If they're huggers, hug. If they're not huggers, don't try to hug. Um, empathize and be honest. I think that's the best thing. Is just, you know, say, I really, I want to go here with you. I'm just so tired. Or, um, I I see how you feel, and I probably would feel that way too. You know, one thing you can say that's always true. This is my for my old corporate America line, but because people are always trying to get you to buy in in corporate America. But I would say. If I were you, I would feel exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. You're not them, but you could empathize by saying that. Or I get, I get it. I'd be frustrated too. So, trying to find that connection. Okay, I think I don't know if we have time. Well, we can go through this. Uh, traits of passive communication are, and this is more towards those that don't feel. That they deserve respect. Poor eye contact allows others to infringe upon their rights. Softly spoken allows others to take advantage. And the I always say a passive communicator is the one that when they have the burnt sandwich served to them, you call the waitress over and you go, Hey, this is kind of burned. Or or either that's that's really good for them. Or they just eat around it. No, it's fine, I'll just kind of scrape it off. You know. Um, so we want to be we want to be assertive. Oh, there we go. Um, oh, so aggressive communicators we all know one, right? They're just they're like if they get served the burnt sandwich. I want to speak to the manager. We all need dessert, and you're just like mortified. And it's it's like <laughs> my prodigal goes, don't poke the beast. You know, because you just don't want that aggressiveness and that, and they are, their use of criticism, humiliation, and domination, um, frequent interruptions, failure to listen to it, each other, easily frustrated speaking, they're very loud and overbearing. And sometimes that's, they use that. And if you notice, if you let them, and I still remember our prodigal doing this, just getting loud. You know, I'm going, to, I'm going to control with my anger. And it's hard, but sometimes you just kind of have to lean in or you have, you're going to feel that tension. Let me just sit with this for just a minute and say, I'm willing to listen to you, but you've, you, I'm going to need you to speak to me respectfully. I know sometimes it's easy to just, I'm going to lash back. You're lashing at me and my first instinct is to go at you. But what you want to do is model emotional regulation. Okay, so you want to be the assertive communicator who listens without interrupting, clearly states needs and wants, stands up for personal rights, and makes good eye contact. And that's what you you want to communicate to your son or daughter. I'm on your team. I'm going to stand up for your rights. I will, you know, I'm your ride-or-die parent, but I'm going to need you to work with me on this. Okay, affirming our kids. Praise is essential, and I know it's so hard when they're making you so crazy, and they're not doing one, you're like, I know people go, Kim, they're not doing anything to praise, you know, but you can find things, and the most important thing is to praise for something internal, not their behaviors. I know the behaviors are, um, are easy to praise, like, oh, look, you made an A. But what you want to focus on is their internal qualities. So um, I see your heart. You have a good heart. Or I have noticed that, you know, you have been um, taking good care of your dog see you're you know you're very responsible you're being really responsible with the dog or just catch them doing things and if they don't just say you know what i miss your sense of humor you've got the best sense of humor but we don't laugh as much as we used to laugh and i miss that just thinking of things that are more internal qualities not behaviors are important and when you address negative behaviors you have to use three positives. <laughs> we call it the compliment sandwich, where you start with the compliment to open their heart, you give them the constructive criticism, and then you use a compliment to close it. So that they understand that you're delivering this in love. Affirm kids' emotions and expressions of them. I I want to hear everything you're feeling, but you can't you can't yell at me, but I want to hear everything you're feeling. And so, when they tell you something, instead of the first thing, well, well, what'd you do? Ask them, how'd you feel when they said that to you? Or how'd you feel when you arrived at the rehab? Or, how'd you feel when that counselor treated you like that? Because there, there are some scary counselors out there, and you never know because it's all happening behind closed doors. So, if they come out and they say, no, I don't like that counselor, or, that counselor was. Rude to me, I'd say, okay, well, let's let's keep looking then. Um, parents address kids' behaviors with love, and never take a child's dignity. I'm huge on this. It, I know it's in the moment you're like, oh my gosh, but try to get them in a private place before you tell them what's what they've done wrong. And we all we all want our dignity to be intact. We. Nobody wants to be humiliated. And so when, when you're talking with your child, just make sure you know, you're talking to them in the way that you would want to be spoken to, you know? And I don't think, I think the more adult we can treat them, the better it's gonna go than if we treat them like children. You know, uh, well, you know what? You're almost an adult, and this, this kind of behavior is gonna get you into trouble. I always I always bring the friends into it. Like you're not going to have any friends very long if you you know, if you do that. If you flake on people, how, how like they're going to learn that you're not dependable. Okay, boundaries and substance abuse. Do not confront a person when they're drunk or high. How many people have done that already? <laughs> yeah, boy, that's a scary thing, isn't it? And and really they. You're the, you're doing good if they remember it because a lot of them are too drunk or high to even be, you know, like taking in what you're saying and they're not themselves either. So you want to get somebody who's sober at least when if you're going to confront them. Um because usually worse things happen when you confront people that are anybody who's drunk or high you just want to kind of okay just going up to bed we'll talk about it later Um, don't allow illegal substances in your home now some people are like no we you know we smoke ourselves but I think you have to decide okay these are our rules this is what we're going to do and we can't have that Um, with our son we had a young he's five years older almost than his little brother So we couldn't really afford to have any drugs hanging around our house, even though there were drugs hanging around our house. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, we weren't very very successful with that, but that was the rule. You can't have drugs in the house because you have a little brother and that's not what we want to expose him to. So, um, and when he did go to, it was pretty funny because when he did go to school in Colorado, where it's legal, he came home and we said, you can't come back in unless you can pass a drug test. So he we went to live with a friend, and I think it was around the 4th of July, he finally came home with a drug test. He goes, I think I can pass it. <laughs> so um, get help for those who have addictions. And I think that's the the most important thing is that we recognize, you know, they need help. And we don't, We sometimes it's like, Okay, let's start with therapy, and then the therapist can let us know this is bigger than me. You know, you probably need to take them to a treatment center. Talk about drug and alcohol use, Um, and I, I'm not against being honest yourself. You know, okay, this is what I did, and this was my problem, Um, or you know, as most people do. Like I went to college. Oh yeah, we cycled through that, and I think. That's what most people do, but not addicts. Um, make addicts accountable for their actions. Oh, I was going to say the profile of an addict, too, So, because they're delightful people. They are so charming. And even if they're not charming in this stage of their life, they were charming, and I believe they'll be charming again. So um, they're above-average intelligence. Their social skills are fabulous. They are empaths themselves. They're like they're such tender hearts. When you get them in a group, and I interned at Ridgeview with um, in the adolescent unit with substance abusers, and they're so funny because they're like, "Oh, I'm so sorry that happened." Oh, you did. Oh, you know they're just really empathic and tender hearts. Um, they usually have a creative bent, some creative streak. It could be culinary, it could be music, art. It's writing, it's something. Um, and they're athletic. They're usually pretty darn good with their bodies. They might not have been team player sports, but, um, or they might have been. But they're usually very agile. You know, That's why you see a lot of their skating, their skateboarders, because they're so good with their bodies. Um, but the two downsides I see to addicts in general not just prodigals kids but adults as well and they will tell you this if they're honest they don't want to be controlled and they can be quite controlling themselves so it's kind of a oh okay well at least you're not controlling you know and they they can use that because that makes them fabulous manipulators they're really good you just you can't believe how good they are so and I, I think they know us because we love them we want so desperately for them to do well so they know what that looks like to us as well um, I think that's it. If I, if anything else comes to me but that was my profile of the addicts are usually just great, great people they've got it all um, okay the three C's to remember when you're dealing with a loved one's addictions are you didn't cause it you can't control it and you can't cure it. So, we're all gonna say that together, but we're gonna say I instead. Ready, is everybody ready? Okay, I didn't cause it, I can't control it, and I can't cure it. Y'all probably heard that before, hopefully. Is that the mantra? (laughs) Yeah, and it's so hard because other people, especially if they're real happy with, with their kids' progress in life, like so you can't get him to do his homework I mean they're they really I'm sure saying it out of kindness but it feels shaming it feels very judgmental and judging when we're judging it prevents relationship so when we judge our kids it distances them from us or if we shame them it's like I can't be around you're not a safe person anymore um I remember specifically with the um, homework. This was Niles. Um, I'm like Niles, do your homework. He's like make me, and I'm like <laughs> Niles, do your homework or I'm going to kill you. He goes take your best shot. You know, it was just you. You were not going to make him do something that he did not want to do. So. Inspiring them to do something because it's better for them is, is going to get you further in the long run. Okay, don't, these are your boundary tips. Don't be manipulated. Don't allow a person to play the victim. They, they're good at that, they're really good at that. Oh, well, I'm, I'm the only one there that's filling the plank. Um, stop trying to fix the person. And, and we can even, it's funny how you can do this just by changing pronouns. Like, um, instead of we, it's like, well, you need to, dis- instead of we need to decide what to do, f- you know, about this problem, it's you need to decide, and when you have, let us know. So it's just kind of subtle changes, but letting them know you're responsible for this. Um. Forgive yourself for your mistakes. We all make mistakes. Every parent is gonna make a mistake, oh, more than one. And a lot of times, we, because of the track that, that our prodigals have taken, we start to catastrophize our mistakes. Oh, it was that time I left him. Remember at church we left him? You know, it's just crazy stuff it goes through your mind and you look for, you look for ways to ruminate. And you look for ways to beat yourself up. And you just need to give yourself a break and say, I'm human. You know, I need to get out of the should zone. The should zone is where we focus on perfection, which we will never attain, by the way. And we tell ourselves, we should have done this. We should have done that. And all we end up doing is feeling not enough. just not good enough. Because I'm not perfect. I should have done that. Therefore, I'm not good enough. And there's a little Brene Brown saying that I love, it's when perfection goes driving, shame always rides shotgun. Because we feel shameful for that mistake or that that imperfection. And we don't need to. I think I think if anything, you can look at it like, you know, this was divinely orchestrated and you were ordained by God to care for somebody that's a little more difficult, it's going to need a little more finesse to get to the place where God wants him, and he will get there because my son. I don't know if I can find this, um, it wasn't too long ago. I'll brag on him. Um, he had an opportunity, what well, his agent in LA asked him to put in a song for the Tetris movie, and he was like, oh, I, could, I could be on the soundtrack. And the other day, he found out in texted us that um, one of his songs, actually one and then another song he collaborated on, or on the soundtrack of the Tetris movie. So he's really excited. Um, but in this, in his um, email, he says, let me see if I Well, okay. I'm not seeing it. But the, the, last, the last thing that um, he said, maybe this is it. Yep. He tells me all about um, the song and, and the negotiations. And then the last thing he said is, God is good. Mm-hmm. And I said, of all the things that he said in that thing, the most important was, God is good. Yeah. But he's 32. <laughs> He's not 17. He's not 22. You know, So I think they get there. They just, it takes a minute. Um, people aren't against you. They're just for themselves. And this we have to remember when people are not very understanding of what we're going through and not helpful and not um, just, they tend to say some of the, most hurtful things or more shaming things and I don't I just like to believe that they just don't know any better so um, but the good news is you can help them be see differently and but God I always say our prodigal's doing but God and I can remember I let him have his phone because I when we kicked him out because I thought well I want to know where he is and i have to know he's alive so i would literally text him are you alive <laughs> he would go yes mom i'm alive but um i used to pray i can still remember lying in bed in the wee hours of the night and praying lord guard his heart and protect his life guard his heart and protect his life and we just it was just like a mantra you know and i do i do see when i look back and there's those dates of around that time in my Bible, I remember I really felt probably the closest to God then because I had to lean on Him. So, anyway, that's all I have. If, if y'all have any questions or comments, I would love to answer or talk about anything. Nobody? Do you have
2: experience with the mental health component
1: I do. Um, do you mean like the, as in the genetic part, or yeah,
2: like the diagnosis of bipolar the
1: depression? And yes, bipolar. and and that okay. So, like when you have a co-occurring disorder like that, it makes it doubly hard because I don't think any of us can fathom how bad bipolar depression is. Bipolar depression. Is, and we've all met, believe it or not, we've, most adults have met the criteria for depression at one time or the other. you probably think now. <laughs> but it's, our depression tends to be more situational. And then there's just garden-variety depression that people have. But bipolar depression is just so deep and so severe that it's, yeah, it's really hard. So what are you dealing with? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the beautiful thing is the medication for bipolar can be really effective if they take it. But it's vintage bipolar to go, well, I'm fine now. I guess I don't need it. And then they're scrambling when they go through one of their manic phases or depression. They're trying to find the, the pill bottle and it's under their bed or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's I have I've. Counseled lots of bipolar people, yeah, and they and there's a few screening things that you can notice if you've ever questioned whether or not your child has bipolar. Is um, do they ever start projects and not finish them? Is one of the biggies, and then do they buy things they don't need, can't use, you know, can't afford? Is another. Sign of bipolar, besides just dark thoughts, which it's usually genetic.
2: He just bought a car and sober living with no job.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? He'll, He'll figure that out. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that'll be the impetus to get a job. He's working, but yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? So, how many people here are familiar with boundaries? Have y'all talked about that? And was does, was this helpful? Mom. You know, it's just—it's so hard to keep those boundaries. One thing I did um, notice that was helpful was putting things in writing. My husband put a letter to pinned a letter to my daughter before she went to college, and in the letter he stated that if, if they made enough, if she made enough, we weren't going to pay for the class, you know. And so the beautiful thing was she already knew the rule, and it wasn't against us. It was like, no, it was the, the rule itself. Like she, she understood it. She didn't come back and try to get, of course she's not the addict, get, it, get us to change our minds on it. So I think sometimes just writing it in, a, and we've done that. You know, I've done that in therapy with with um, parents and kids. Let's, let's just write out the rules, and let's get something that everybody can agree on. You know, can you agree that we we shouldn't yell anymore? Can you agree that you can come in by midnight or whatever?
0: How
2: yeah. set up boundaries if the other adults in your prodigal's life refuse to set up boundaries? Like, in my case,
1: I was not raised with boundaries. Boundaries are not natural for me at all. Uh-huh. And, but i am gotten to the point where I'm fed up and I'm ready to start putting some boundaries because right. I just can't take this anymore. Yeah. But my parents who raised me, of course, have no such thing as boundaries. So mm-hmm. she's gone to live with them. They cater to her every whim. They're
2: not willing to do anything for the exact reason you had up there that, you know, they're afraid that will ruin the relationship. Right. And they want to be there for her when she falls. Yeah. So yep. I'm like, how am I supposed to handle this situation where I've got them in between, you know?
1: And how old is she? 19. Yeah. There's just nothing you can do. I mean, okay. she's, she's <laughs> an adult. and yeah. And that can be the boundary. If you're somewhere else then, you know, you're not going to get the, the benefit of being responsible. And there's a book written, um, I think it was in the 70s, it's called The Road Less Traveled, and it was by Scott Peck, who's a psychiatrist, and he had, I don't remember much about the book, but there were four markers in there that he um, listed as a markers of adulthood. And um, one was the ability to delay gratification. You don't get things immediately. Like when you're two, the two-year-old cannot delay gratification. They're gonna eat the cookie. But as we get older, we have that ability to delay gratification. Second one was the um, commitment to truth and honesty. So yes, we're going to lie, but we still have a commitment to the truth, right? And we try to tell the truth as much as possible. The third one was um, a balance of work and life. I mean, that was pretty new for back then, but just not too much work and not too much play. And then the last one is own your your behaviors. You know, take responsibility for you. OYS, own your stuff. So I think with that, you can say, you know, they're not going to make you responsible for yourself. You're going to have to do that on your own. And that's all I would tell them. You know, that's they aren't really holding you accountable, which is what I would do and what I would want. Kids, I think deep in their hearts, they want that because I've seen kids get into situations where they're being held accountable and they just shine. You know, so, but, they're, but you're right. You're kind of off the hook. Yeah. She made, she's making her decision now as an adult. Yeah, that's that's hard though. Yeah. It's even harder when it's like divorced parents and one parent's.
2: Well, we've got that too. It caters to her
1: too, so. Yeah. It's, it's fun. So you're but, the bad one. You're I, the bad guy. I know. And that's why she won't talk to me right now, you know. Because yeah. I'm the one who holds her accountable? Her her, so, yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? um I didn't tell the story about, I don't think so, about Whitewater Gate. So this is, um, my son and four other boys went to Whitewater because they saw somebody else had posted a video of skateboarding at Whitewater. This is when it was closed, it was in October. And so they jumped the fence at Whitewater and, um, and they, I don't think they've been there very long and they had a camera too because they wanted to film their crime because that's what you want to do if you're if you're committing a crime make sure you get it on film and post it you know and they're so easy to trace but anyway um, there was a security guard there and he he caught them and he called the police and so Niles calls me and of course my son's the driver and he's like hey so we're in trouble and the police goes. Let me let me talk to her, and so um, I'm like, "Hello," and he goes, "I just want you to know, I give him a slap on the wrist and let him go, but Whitewater wants to prosecute." So I'm like, "Okay," so um, that's when we called John Brocard, <laughs> and um, and we affectionately called Whitewatergate. Now this is back in 2007, but anyway. Um, so John goes in to represent everybody but the one couple that said that um, their son shouldn't have been there and all, and all the other boys were bad influence and they wouldn't even been there if it hadn't been for the other boys. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> they didn't even, they came to pick up his skateboard. They didn't even talk. They were like, we're getting a skateboard. That was the only thing they said to us. So anyway, um, John, it was probably the easiest money you ever made. Whitewater didn't show up. So they dismissed the case. But, yeah. They were so, afraid of John. They, yeah. They saw, <laughs> they saw John was going to represent them. They were like, mm-mm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Kim, I have a question. Sure. From the mom's perspective, did Niles have a come-to-Jesus meeting or... A defining moment where you saw he turned the corner on his destructive behavior, and if so, what was
1: that? That's a great question. Well, he was he was raised in the church, and he asked to be baptized when he was seven, and was kind of going you know the way you, you might expect until about well high school, and even then. Oddly enough, we still did D Now and he still did D Now. Um, he even did D Now, I think, his, his senior year. And um, he had a friend who became a believer at D Now, and Bobby was there, and he, Niles took him to Bobby. And um, Bobby came to me afterward and he said, You know, what must I do? And Niles was explaining it to him and Bobby said I just want you to know Niles did a fabulous job mm-hmm. explaining this to him so he knew it was in his head you know he knew and even even there were some things like over the years references to God but most recently when he's, he was struggling financially I said um, boy I bet, I bet you're, you're I bet you're praying a lot or something he goes Oh, I'm talking to God all the time. Mm -hmm. But he still isn't, like, churched, you know. He goes, he'll come with us if, in, like, you know, Christmas or Easter he went. But, um, yeah, so, but I think there's that spiritual, and we all have a spiritual self, you know. So, if you're going to appeal to, and I always say do that, you know, speak to the spirit in your child, um, don't do it with a relationship to God. Don't do it with a relationship to the church. And there's nothing wrong with the church, but it's when they look at the church, sometimes they see rules and, and that. And I think if you can appeal to them through the Holy Spirit to God and their relationship, God wants, you know, God's there. He's not judging you, He's already forgiven you. You know, it says, um, come let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. And this is the verse that I I like to share with um, our prodigal group. And it comes from Lamentations 3. And it says, um, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. And I always thought about that with our kids because they, they're unhappy too. You know them. You know they're unhappy. But, you know, giving them that vision, reminding them, you know, I'm praying for you, and, and God loves you. You know, sometimes that's, that's all you can get into them. But if they know that's that's where your strength is coming from, I think it it's good for them. So,
2: I'm just going to share. I think like the hardest part is just like letting go, like fully releasing them. And my son's living in sober living. And mm-hmm. I've been trying to get him to come over to the house, and um, but the longer he's been there, he's twenty minutes. The further he seems to be away you know he he's he doesn't want a relationship with us right now Mm -hmm. and um and of course i'm projecting thinking oh my gosh this is bad right yeah but yet they're telling me that he's meeting the milestones meaning he's sober you know he's doing what he needs to be doing um even though he's making some really horrible bad choices that are going to impact him greatly um but, you know, he did indicate to me one time in a text that, that he goes, I'm just dealing with a lot of guilt and shame, and I'm sorry for all of the suffering that I've caused you. So I'm, I'm taking that as this is his time that he just needs. And so what my husband and I are currently doing is, like, once a week I'll text him and I'll say, hey, just want to let you know I'm thinking about you. I love you. And I'm always here. And then I'll get a, I love you too.
1: That's all mm-hmm. I get. That's great, but, though. But
2: then, you know, and then so my husband, he finally, because um, my son did a couple weeks ago, out of the blue said, hey, I was thinking maybe I could come stay the weekend with y'all. Sounds like a cool idea. And I was like, sure. And then nothing came of that. And then finally, so last night, my husband um, sent him a text. He's like, are we ever going to see you again? And my son <laughs> said, um, soon, I'm just working through some."
1: That's awesome. So we don't know, like, really what's
2: going on because I'm choosing not to talk to his therapist. I'm choosing to work on me. Mm -hmm. I'm doing the Families Anonymous. I'm going to two groups every week.
1: I love families. That's how Jackie and I met. Yeah, I think
2: that's been a a turning point for me. It's Mm -hmm. like I'm starting to focus on me because I've been focusing on my son for eight months.
1: And I think that whole, you know, process of relinquishing, because we're not abandoning, we're relinquishing to God. And I think that whole process is really letting go of the fear because it's the fear that keeps us so, you know, holding on to it so tightly and so focused on the outcome instead of, okay, this is just a process. It'll have a ripple effect. John and I were talking about the ripple effect of our sons and how you know, prodigal, parents of prodigals wouldn't be here without Baba mm-hmm. you know I probably wouldn't be a counselor without Niles and so I think just seeing what God's going to do through him
2: and I think the hardest thing was I I decided to stop paying for the sober living and um, it was really the hardest thing and I, at first I did it out of anger because of the choice he made and um I, The response I got back was um, have a good life, I'm never talking to you again. But then that only lasted a couple weeks Mm -hmm. and then now, you know, obviously we're talking, but I I pretty much, I haven't said it again but I think he knows and so this will be kind of the first month that he's going to have to have the discussion with them about, you know, what's next.
1: Yeah. Well, what am I going to... And I think that we we send them the message that you can do this a lot of times we don't realize when we enable we send them the message that you can't do this so i'm going to have to do it for you and that's that's the most destructive message they could get but if you say i'm i'm not going to do this for you anymore because i i've had faith in you you can do this yeah well it sounds like it sounds great sounds like he's going in the right direction And and Guilt and shame are actually when they start to come out of that, like I noticed that in um, Ridgeview with the, the kids that I worked with is that that guilt and shame was so triggering for them. That's the thing that made them feel like I just want to use again because this feels so bad I can't even believe I treated my little brother that way or my parents, you know, so getting him to know you're forgive, we forgive you. God forgives you. You need to forgive yourself and face forward. You know, let's see what's what's next. What's, you know, what's around the bend for you. Anybody else? Well, well thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having me.